when we make statements, and I'm going to talk about the subject of that God is love and what the Bible means by the statement, God is love. It isn't just a sermon about love, although, of course, that is a big part of it. But uh, it's a fascinating kind of statement to me, God is love. Is that like saying, this is wood? Or is it an adjective? But I think, and I think there's a difference, though, between saying God is loving and God is love. And he says, for example, so maybe a little bit later on in the lesson, you shall, you shall be holy even as your heavenly Father is holy. Is holy. And so the question is, is love part of the, the component of God? Is that part of his nature? Not just an adjective that describes what he does, but it is it what he is. Now I happen to have, I, we're not going to get into this this morning because I would have a difficult time proving what I think about this completely from the scripture in any way that you might understand. But I believe that the kind of things where he says this is the fruit of the spirit, gentleness, meekness, and all those kind of things that God talked about the fruit of the spirit, forbearance. I compare that to what we're going to eat in heaven, what we're going to breathe in heaven. We're not going to be in the air. We're not going to eat food. But we're going to be in the presence of a spiritual being who is those things. And that's going to be our sustenance, not physical things that we keep worrying about. How not, What carrot is the gold in the streets of gold? Is it 18 or 24 carat? I mean, this kind of thing people worry about. That's not the point of those scriptures at all. You see. How, how nice it is. Or I got a mansion over the hilltop, but my mansion's going to be bigger than yours because I'm a better Christian than you are. And so I get a bigger reward. Oh, people that believe this, this kind of thing, I get a bigger reward. And because my, so my mansion's going to be bigger. One fellow said he had gone up in the kingdom so much that in the, in the millennium, he was going to be the governor of Arkansas. I thought to myself, you should shoot a little higher if you want to, you know, than that. But, uh, that's not what the verses are talking about. But when you say God is love, I, I really take that in some way, although I don't understand what it could mean exactly, that that's what God is. It's not describing as an adjective what he is. The sky is blue. Is the sky really blue? Well, no, it's air or something, but it's not blue. Blue is a color. It, that's an adjective describing what we see. But when it says God is love, I think the Bible means something different than an adjective. And then let's, let's just go, we're going to do a lengthy reading. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to 1 John 4, we're going to read the whole chapter. I started to pick out just a few verses, and I just love this whole chapter. And I love it, and I can tell you that I don't think I understand all that it means in any way, shape, or form. Maybe that's why I love it, because there's so much more here than meets the eye, and so much more for us to think about. But John starts out by warning Christians uh, by the way, John, John, the Apostle John, that's who this is, the, the one that Jesus loved. He's a different kind of fellow. He is not a fisherman like Peter, although Peter was a spiritual man. Peter was more of an earthy man. John is much more contemplative, and John looks at everything oddly. And what we see in the book of John, I believe, and in the, and in, and in the gospel, are big sweeping statements. Not just... Not something you can analyze and break everything down, but a big sweeping statement of truth. 
He's not, he doesn't even consider the exceptions to what he's saying on purpose, I think. He wants us to get the big point and not miss the real thing here by quibbling over what we might call exceptions or we do the what ifs or what abouts, you know, about everything. John is not that way. He says, he sees a big picture. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, we'll stop for a second. I know this verse goes on, but I don't want to, I don't want to leave this slide here. A spirit here, he's not talking about some mystical ghost floating around. It's obvious in this case, he's talking about an idea. Ideas are spirits. They're not tangible things you can grab a hold of. They're thoughts. They exist, but they don't exist in a material plane. They're spirits that are floating around, and we're bombarded with spirits all the time. Every kind of idea that you can think of. And so many people are just not very critical of the things that they hear and that they see around them in the spirit of the age that we live in. They just accept and go along. When a magazine says this is the new style this year, they go buy those clothes. When they say, when they get the idea that this is the style of shoes that people wear, they go buy those shoes. They don't criti- they don't take a look at it. When society says women can dress any way they want, it's, you know, and it doesn't matter if, if they expose their, themselves sexually. Okay, that's fine. I, I, I'm with that. They just go on. They don't crit- they don't stop and think about anything that they do. John warns us about that as Christians. Do not believe every idea or every spirit that you hear, but test them to see if they are from God. How are we going to do that? Well, and he doesn't say in this verse, but we're going to read the scriptures and assess whether that ma- whether those things match up. And uh, because he says many false prophets have gone out into the world. I don't think he means just false prophets about religious things or date setters. A prophecy is also an idea. And a prophet is one who claims to speak for God or to teach what God says. And so there are false ones. They're not teaching what is true. Now, sometimes the word false prophet, I don't want to get too far afield, but sometimes the word false prophet means the man is insincere. Like the, the faith healer, or was it Kenneth Copeland? You send him your stuff and all your handkerchiefs and, and, and other things, and he'll send you this back. He'll pray over them. So people send him trinkets and lockets of hair and their handkerchiefs, and they praise over them. They get healing. Well, guess what? They found all of those in a dumpster about 500 miles from where he lived, and all the cash had been sent somewhere, stripped from those envelopes, and the cash had been checked, been sent somewhere else where he was. He's false in that he is a pretender, a false kind of person, okay? But now this isn't talking about that kind of false prophet, I don't think. This is linking up the idea as to whether it's true or false. Do you see that difference how they're using the word false here? Not false as in fake, but false as in untrue. And he says, here's how you can know the Spirit of God. This isn't the only way, but every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and is now already in the world. People don't believe that scripture either. They read right over that. John is not saying this is the only way you can know a spirit of God, but in the controversy of the day that he was dealing with, this is the big way. Now, we haven't got time to go into it in detail, but this is saying that there are people of that day who are saying that Jesus is a 
is a spirit. God is a spirit. Therefore, if he's going to be godly and holy, he's got to be a spirit. Any, anything that has to do with the physical body or physical things is sinful and it's not of God. And therefore, if it's physical and sinful, it's not of God. So Jesus could not have a body, otherwise he would be sinful. So Jesus must have been just a spirit. He just looked like a person, just looked like he had a body, but he was really just a spirit. This is what was being taught at this time. And it came to be believed widely by a group of people called the Gnostics later on. This is the same root problem of those who say, well, you know, any kind of physical pleasure is sinful. So they picture a nice, beautiful meal, and they say this is sinful meal. Oh, isn't this, isn't this dessert so sinful? What dessert is sinful? What, where does the Bible say any dessert is sinful? Or this is sinful. I mean, it's so delicious. It's sinful. That's a Gnostic idea. It's not a Bible idea at all. God says receive everything with thanksgiving. Because God gave it to you. Well, that's just one thing. Or, or sex is sinful because it's pleasurable and it's of the flesh. And so therefore, sex must be sinful. We gotta cut it down to a minimum. And if you're a good wife, you'll shut down that because, you know, you want your husband to be spiritual on and to be physical. And this is taught in Christian churches. Amen. Has been for centuries. It's against what the Bible teaches because the flesh is not sinful. I, my heart can be sinful and I can use my fleshy desires to get what I want. But he says here that the Antichrist is the one who's saying this. And he says the Antichrist isn't some guy that's coming at the end of time. I understand that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. He's going to take over the whole world. You think that's true? I, I, when, years ago, Fidel Castro was the Antichrist. How's that working out for you Antichrist people? Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. Charlemagne, Alexander the not Alexander the Great, but go all the way back. All, all these fellows were all the Antichrist. John says this spirit of that which is against Christ was in the world already at that time and working on people's hearts and minds to lead them away from Christ. This is not a figure that comes at the end of time uh, that's unique to that period of time. This is an idea that lives in the world. And the idea has an embodiment in real people who believe certain things. Now he says, you are of God, though, you little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You can overcome these enemies of God because God's working through you. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. If you think there's a time coming in our, in your lifetime when the people of power in our society are going to be speaking for God and you can trust them because they have your best interest at heart as a Christian, you're being deceived. The world is against Christ and his power and his influence over you and they are going to, they're, they're, they're going to deceive you. But the world, the world hears these people, these antichrists, and they listen to them. We're of God. He who knows God hears us. As an apostle, we are of God. The we hears the apostle. We are of God. Those who know God hear us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are plenty of religious people in nice flowing robes who will not listen to what the apostles say. They refuse to believe what the apostles say. This verse tells me, those people may look like they're from God. You may think they are, but they're not of God because they don't listen to what the apostles say. They tell us the apostle Paul was a sexist misogynist not to be taken seriously. 
that Peter was just an early apostle he doesn't mean very much. And so they dismissed the apostles and they put up some other man as the authority. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now here he says love is of God, comes from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So there's that big brush stroke, big stroke. Now, there's obvious exceptions to these, and depending on how you define the words, there this is true or not true, but John is making a point that love, true self-sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificial love, agape, that comes from God, doesn't come from man. Man does not have built in him agape or self-sacrificial love. God does. And whenever you see love in the world where someone is doing what is for the benefit of someone else rather than themselves, when you see that, you're seeing the influence of God in the, in the world and in that person. Doesn't mean that person is perfect. Doesn't mean they're sinless, but you're seeing that influence of God in them. And we know this, that if you do not, do not love and love is not in you, if you're the kind of person who thinks only of themselves, we all know these people then you do not know God. I don't care how many times you go to church, how often you go, what you claim about, how many ta- how many cross tattoos you have on your body. If you do not love, you do not know God. Now that that makes that might make all of you I can sense you all feel good about that. You all feel good about that verse because you think, well, I, I love so I know God. Really? I think it's a challenging verse. Because all of us, instinctively, the time we're little children, we want what we want. We want to bend the world in our direction so we get what we want. We, we even use our children and our mates to get this what we want in our way, and everything gets filtered through our eyes. You know people like that, that you can't hardly have a conversation of any meaning because everything gets pushed, pulled back to, to what, how it affects them and what's happening to them. Now, the world has words like, overused words like narcissist and all that kind of stuff. And that's completely overused today. Anybody who, you know, tries to do the best they can for themselves is a narcissist. What, you know how we use that word today, narcissist? Anybody who's not giving me what I want is a narcissist because they're trying to control me. So, we use it in a narcissistic way. We blame other people for being narcissists because they won't do what we want. I'm like, huh? I think that's kind of the definition of the word. But he who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. That's his nature. That's what he is. If you don't have that or don't want that, then he's saying you don't want anything to do with what God is. What God is, because that's what he is. Not, he's not loving. He's love in this case. And so if we will not ever put down our weapons and learn to understand self-sacrificing love that works for the benefit of other people, not ourselves. We will never understand God. Never understand God. And there are plenty of people standing in pulpits who are not loving because they don't, they don't have that attitude in them. Plenty of people, uh, that, that are supposedly paragons of virtue who only think of how things are going to benefit themselves. Now it goes on to say, and this, the love of God was manifested toward us. How, what is love here? Well, love agape, we'll come to that in a moment, is, is I keep saying this self-sacrificial love for the benefit of someone else. 
This was shown to us, manifested to us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is very reminiscent of the verse, we'll look at a moment where John records in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. What's the proof that God is love? He sent His Son. Didn't have to, didn't need to, but His nature is such that that's what He did because of what He's like. In in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. It's easy for people, uh, easy, I don't know, I'm just saying, it's possible for people who were raised in a religious world, in a religious country, or particularly in a religious home, to grow up thinking that somehow they know this love of God on their own because it's what they've been taught since they were young, that God is love and, and that Christ came and died for the ungodly and that we should love our fellow man as we do ourselves. We've been taught this, many of us have since we were young. And even if we haven't ever been to church till we were older, we knew these things because we grew up in a country where this was kind of talked about a lot. But he's saying here, nobody has this idea on their own. They only get it from, from God himself. We loved, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. You don't grow up loving God. You grow up loving whatever your conception of God is. And you grow up loving God that gives you what you want. How can I say this? Okay, so um, I have this ring on. I'll just—I've got ten illustrations in my head. I'll use it. I have this ring on my finger here that you, many of you know. I, I got it in Bethlehem last year. It's from the city of Jerusalem. This coin here is a widow's mite that was found underneath the temple in Jerusalem in a jar. I love this ring. I have to love it. I paid a lot of money for it, so I have to love it. But anyway. I'm forced to now. But anyway, I love this ring. Now I don't know what story I was going to tell you. Um, huh? What was I saying? Anyway, uh, I really don't know what I was going to tell you. Okay, we'll move along. You can hide your own Easter eggs. I can hide my own Easter eggs. Oh, I have a really good point there, and it'll come back to me in a moment. If, if you go to lunch with me, you'll hear the story. Anyway, but uh, oh, so good, <laughs> so profound. Anyway, we, we don't love God on our own. We're, we learn about that, and then we do something about that, and we we pick up what we like. But he says, you know, if God so loved us, that is, he loved us even when we didn't love him, we also ought to love one another. Now, the problem that people have with this verse, I think, we can parrot it, we can, we can put it on our wall in a cross stitch or something like that. But the problem that you really have with that is, what do you think your de what your definition of love is? Most of us hear the word love as Americans, and we're thinking, feel kindly affection toward you know, have a strong affection for them, feel nice about them, wish the best for them. 
That's why I have a problem with this heaven. I, I love the whole world. People say, oh, I love everybody. I love the whole world. You can't do that. The Bible never says that. God can love the whole world because He knows all of them. And he, can, he can act towards all of them. He has a power to act for the benefit of all those people. What's He tell me to do? Love my neighbor. Oh, well, now I can do that. The neighbor means someone who's near you. Well, I don't do that oftentimes, but I can do that. It's possible that I can love those who I come in contact with every day. And by love, I don't mean feel, feel kindly affection toward. I mean, do what is in their best interests. Act in them in such a way that it benefits them, not just you in some fashion. Even if it's a, a challenge or a rebuke is love in that sense. Much less putting down what you have to have at that moment and doing, uh, and doing something for them. But to love the whole world, I don't have that power. We like to think we can hold hands around the world and love each other, but that's defining love as a feeling. And that's not how he uses this word here. If God had good feelings toward us, we ought to also have good feelings toward one another. This means so much more than that. So much more than that. Good feelings toward them. And, and then he goes on to, and we'll come back then, just hold on to that. But no one, he says, no one has seen God any time. You want to talk about God? No one's seen God. If we love one another, go. God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. You haven't seen God. You talk about loving God. Oh yes, I love God. Little children can repeat that. What's it mean? When you flip it, that love to me means doing what is in the best interest of someone else. When you flip that, it means that I'm not thinking of myself. I'm thinking of what God wants me to do. I'm thinking of what God expects of me, what God thinks about things. That's the flip. So a person that loves God is one who is constantly thinking, what would God think about this? What does God desire here for me? That's loving God, not just feeling kindly affection toward him. Because I can tell you, I think Job loved God, but he didn't feel so kindly affectionate at times by, toward God. But I think he loved him because he kept thinking about him. He kept thinking about what does God mean and what's he expect from me. But if you, he says, you ha can't see God, but if you love another person that you can see, then God will live in you and you can, love can be perfected in you. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because we have given, he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent us the son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. When you confess this openly, that I believe that this Jesus is God's Son, you're accepting God's love. Jesus is the visible symbol or visible manifestation of God's love. And when you accept that and believe that, then God is with you. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. Here he says it again. Same passage, twice. I think this is the only two times in the Bible it says this. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God is in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. What does he mean by that? God is love. He's acted in the best interest of us, in spite of the cost it took, cost, what it cost God, to do what he did. He's acting our best interest in sending his son to the world. We believed in his son. In so doing, that puts us under obligation to love our neighbors 
because we are under obligation to do the same thing that God did for us to other people. And that's what he means by love has been perfected among us in that we've actually, it's been brought to fruition among us in the fact that we love each other. And so therefore, we can have boldness in the day of judgment. There is no fear in love. I love that. I love that verse, verse 18. I love that. There's no fear in love. People say, well, fear of what? Well, that's another whole sermon, but I will say no fear of judgment in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment and he who fears has not been made perfect in love. He who fears. The fear here that we have in opening ourselves up to other people and revealing ourselves to them and sometimes in doing what we would love to do with them and accepting them and them accepting us is because we fear to be judged. And I see this more and more in my lifetime as something that people are hiding from. I was telling someone the other day that one of the big changes I've seen is in a, being a preacher in the last 40-some years, 45 years, is that people won't tell me anything. They just won't tell me the truth. You people will not tell me the truth. A lot of you won't. Because you won't actually tell me what I need to know so I can help you or encourage you or rebuke you. You won't tell me. And I think it's because you think I don't love you because the world doesn't love any of us. We're pretty sure we have to hide. We have to pretend to be better than we are or more faithful than we are, whatever it may be. We have to pretend that we don't have evil thoughts or bad thoughts or we've never done anything wrong. We have to pretend all this with each other. And because we're afraid of what each of us are going to say or think, we're so consumed with what some other person might think of us that we hide from each other. I, I predict that lots of people are going to continue to wear masks long after this is over. I already see it among young people in particular. Young people are wearing masks, keeping, continuing to wear masks because they want to hide. I don't say that as a criticism. I say it as a sad thing. They, what's the one thing they don't want to ever be? Judged. And if they hide most of their face, that's part of something they can't be judged for. They can smirk, they can smile, they can do whatever they want behind there. No one can tell, and they can't be judged. But wearing that mask will cut you off from people. It will cut you off. Therefore, the thing you think you want, which is acceptance, you can never receive. can never have it. And so fear casts out love. And love casts out fear. You can reach a point in a marriage... Sometimes you can get there too quickly, but you should try. You can reach a point in marriage where you're not afraid that the other person is going to find out something about you. Because you realize even if they find out, they'll love me anyway. What a wonderful thing to be loved anyway. Isn't that what all of us really desire? The one thing that all humans have in common all down through history is to be loved without those condition, without condition. To be known by someone else and loved anyway. That's the greatest thing that you can have. So on my Facebook page, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. I think that's true. And I think it goes right back to this verse right here. Because fear is cast out. So I can have boldness in the day of judgment. I can have confidence in talking to God. I can talk to God openly now in my life because He knows me and I know He knows me. 
He, he knows what's in my heart, and most of the time it's good, and it, it wants to do what's right. Sometimes it doesn't, but he knows that too. And I still understand, according to the Bible, that he still loves me because I've named his son, I believe in his son, I depend upon his son, and therefore there's no fear in this. There's no fear in love. Now, when it says God is love, what it's saying to us is God wants to walk with us in the cool of the day in the garden like He did Adam and Eve. Face to face. He wants that. We don't want that. We want to hide in the bushes. Because He might see us. We love Him because He first loved us. That's why we love Him. Because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now that applies in churches for sure. It's one of the saddest things that you'll see in situations over time in churches. People that claim they love God so much, but they won't even try to work out the problems that come up between brothers. Human beings cannot be in a group of people like this, or in a family even, for any length of time without there being difficulties. The only way they can do that is to ignore whatever differences there are. But if you're going to love each other as you are and accept them, you're going to have all kinds of problems come up that require something of you. But somebody says, I love God, but they hate their brother. The old story that two women who sat completely apart in the building for 25 years, they sat and their friends wouldn't talk to her friends and they they were in the same church building, but they were sitting on opposite corners for years. And when the preacher, new preacher came and tried to figure it out, the truth is he couldn't find out what either one of them thought was the problem. They didn't remember what started it all. I don't think that's an uncommon story. I've heard it more than once. I don't think that's an uncommon story in families and in people and in churches. And you're saying, oh, how I love Jesus. When this person who you can see here, I think we pretend. You can't see God, so it's easy to say, I love you. We can't see our neighbors around the world, our, all the people in all the nations, all we can get representations of them somehow, but we don't know those people. It's easy to say, I love them all. Maybe you do. But it's much harder to love your brother who's right there that you have to deal with. Or go home and love your wife or your children or your boss or somebody like that. By love, I don't mean feel kindly affection toward them. I mean do what's in their interest and, and, and seek their best, the best for them. And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So God comes right back and he says, God has loved twice and tells me I have to love my brother also. Now, in looking at this real quickly, time is almost gone. There are four words for love in Greek, as many of you already know. We have one word in English, love, and it means everything from I love pizza to I love God to whatever the case may be. And it's a very, very big word and a big basket you can dump a lot of stuff in. Culturally, I would say today, and it's been this way most of my life and getting worse, love just simply means I feel nice about it, I feel kindly affectioned about it. And that's all it means, feelings. But that's not what it meant in Greek, or especially in the Bible in many cases. The first word, this word is not in the Bible, but it was a common word in Greek for love, eros. We get erotic from that, of course. And so it does mean, uh, it does mean sexual love. The Greeks were more, were broader than that, though. 
it didn't mean pornography as much as it just meant romantic love and uh, or erotic as intimacy. There's a lot of talk about intimacy today in marriage and things like that. Intimacy is just another word to some degree for some people for emotional feeling. We try to create intimacy in a marriage, which means they have good emotional feelings toward each other. It's a good thing. But intimacy, intimacy on its own is shallow and not sufficient, you see. It could be infatuation with another person's beauty. So anybody ever have, have a crush on a girl or a boy in sixth grade or seventh grade? I mean, I had a crush on one girl so bad in high school, early high school, that I tried to figure out what class she was in and take the same class so I could just look at her. I don't think I ever said one word to this girl, ever. I was too paralyzed to ever say anything to her. And the truth is, she wasn't all that beautiful, but I thought she was. I was completely, totally infatuated. Am I the only one? That's the way Judy felt when she met me. That's how I know about this. <laughs> that chance of that. But anyway, this is, this is a form of eros in, in that it's an infatuation. It's a feeling. It's not even explainable. And so we have all this culture, uh, cultural stuff in our society that love is an unexplainable. Love is a many splendored thing. It's just all that. Okay. The Bible never uses that word for love. Make it that what you will. And then you have this word, uh, philia or philos. That's the female for it. There's a male. Philadelphia. The Adelphos in Greek is sister. Well, no, it's brother. Adelphos is brother. And you get philia. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Actually, Philadelphia, I hate to tell you, is the city of sisterly love. Because it's a feminine ending. But don't... Don't uh, don't bore, uh, don't bore yourself with the facts. But anyway, philo, uh, we have philosophy. Sophos is wisdom, philos is love. So philosophy is a love of wisdom. You have all those kind of words, and and that means more of a brotherly love, a friendship. It it, it talks about it's friendship. It's an affectionate regard for your friends and people that you know and loyalty to your friends and family. I mean, you can go all the way from the mafia being loyal to each other, you know, to two to brothers and a family being loyal to each other. It has a broad meaning of this. It requires virtue. It requires some kind of equality and familiarity. And the Bible uses this word quite often uh, for love. In fact, when... Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? He responded by saying, Lord, I phileo you. I love you. You're my friend. I care about you. I feel affection towards you. But that's not the main word that's used. It says God is love. So this is, in the Christian view, this is a slightly inferior meaning of the word. And then there is this word storge. I should have put the accent mark there, but this is familial love, natural affection. Okay, so the Bible says about the Greeks, about the Gentiles in Romans 1, one of the accusations he made about them, and this is the only time it's used in the New Testament that I know of, they were without natural affection. That meant that they didn't even mind killing their own children to get them out of the way if they were 
trouble to them. And in Rome, in these cities, we know that there were carts that went around every day. The mothers who didn't want that child, the newborn baby, would throw it out on the street. They performed Caesarean sections, threw them out in the gutters, and these carts would come along and collect these babies uh, and take them to the dump to be burned. Well, that sounds familiar to me. That doesn't sound so odd and unfamiliar. We, we, we call that a constitutional right. They just didn't have the technology we do about it, but they didn't want those children. And so they killed them. And Paul says they were without natural affection. It's stunning to us when people, uh, the picture, one of the famous pictures from the Depression era was a woman on a doorstep with little children sitting there and it said children for sale. You ever seen that picture from the Depression? She had four children and she was selling them. She didn't want them anymore. Now, she was in bad shape. I'm sure she had an abusive husband. It's probably the man's fault, usually is, and all that. But this woman wanted to get rid of them, so she sold them. Now, we, we, we kind of re, uh, recoil from that because it's not storge. It's not natural. Did you? And here's how this works in society in real time. If you're worried about your child being sexually molested by someone, the person you need to worry about is your boyfriend or your or a stepfather. Children are seven to ten times, some people say, more likely to be abused by a stepfather or a boyfriend. In fact, most child murders occur from someone who is not blood-related but is a relative or friend, like a boyfriend or a stepfather. Why is it that people will molest or hurt their stepchildren, and the evil stepmother. You think that's just made up? No, it's real. Stepmothers can be very evil toward these children who are not theirs. They want to get rid of that other woman and her children. They want to get her out of their life, and they don't sometimes even mind killing them. Happens all the time. And those people do not have natural affection because that's not my blood relative. So that's how it was used sometimes. The Bible does not tell me, well, it doesn't say this is what God has. Of course, we're all children of God and He loves us all, but that goes. But the other word, then the last word is agape, which I'm sure you're familiar with. This is the big word for love in the Bible. It's in the New Testament in particular. It's not in the Old Testament because it's not written in Greek, but this is an unconditional self-sacrificing love. This is what the King James calls the word charity. It doesn't mean benevolence. It means uh, a self-sacrificial love for God and other people, which means you're putting the interest of the other person in front of your own interest as much as possible. It is not natural at all. It only comes because we have contact with God. This is not the natural status of human beings. If you want to listen, if you want to listen or read about how the evolutionists talk about family bonding and love, you will not hear agape in their discussions because agape doesn't come from evolution. It's not about, well, humans did this and do that and they protect their children so they can survive. That's storge, but that's not agape. Because a lot of the time children and wives and husbands are in the way of what you want. 
And so in sophisticated civilizations like our own, we find ways around the wife and the child and the husband and the other people because we don't get what we want out of it. But if you have contact with God, if God has come into your life and you begin to understand who He is because of this verse, the God so loved the world, there's the word of God, agapeo, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then you begin to understand how you treat other people. And it changes who you are. It changes, if you understand this verse, it changes everything about you. Or can change everything about you. That God got nothing out of saving the world except the fact that He cared about these creatures that He had made. And not only did He care about them and feel, feel something for them, He actually did something for their welfare that cost Him something. And so He was willing to make that sacrifice. Now th this is the meaning of the phrase, God is love. It was so a part of what His nature is that I think this sacrifice of His own Son was something that was almost unavoidable. Something like that had to happen. Because once He made those creatures and they, they were lost, His affection for them outweighed whatever cost it was He had to pay to save them. Now this is love toward other people. So when we are well, what we don't do is think through what we say and do. But if we ever did do that too much, we'd begin to think through what we say and do and how we're relating to other people and see whether whether what we're doing is all about how it works for me, how it fits me or not. This is the biggest problem of our age. This is the big problem of our age that everyone is focused only on their own self and their own feelings. And when you have a society that's been told that your feelings are everything, that's the me generation, that's my generation on down. You cannot have a loving society. As long as people are focused on themselves, love is driven out. Agape is driven to the sidelines. And so, does it surprise us when we don't see love around, real love? No, it shouldn't surprise us at all because God's nature is being driven to the sidelines in society. It's only about what you want. There wasn't much love in the Garden of Eden when the Satan came there. Well, we got to stop this morning. Thank you very much for your participation. I have a lot more to say about this, but maybe some other time we can talk more about it. So when you hear the phrase, God is love, please understand what it really means. It means love your brother as yourself. It also means you have to understand what was necessary to save you. That's something else humans don't like about all this. You start talking about God is love because He sent His only begotten Son. I'll tell you what the background of that nice verse is. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word, the background of behind that is the word perish. That's what's behind all that. Perish. So without this, you are going to perish. You're going to be lost from God. Because if you won't love each other and love God, there's nothing for you except to be put where the devil is and all of his angels away from God forever. That's the perishing. So this morning as we uh, sing this song that's been selected, uh, uh, number 125, please consider that. Maybe you need to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself more. 
learn to love those around you. If, if you want help with that, come to the front. We can pray about that. We can even, we can even talk to you about where you might have failed this morning and you can receive forgiveness for that. If this morning you need to accept the love of Jesus Christ by trusting and believing in him and acting upon that, by being baptized in his name, washed clean, then we can help you do that this morning too. If that's your desire, come right to the front here right now. Let's stand and sing.